0: While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The perfect word of God, may he bless it and its preaching to our hearts and hearing. When was the last time you prayed... For God to be glorified. The good news for me is that as the preacher, I get to ask those questions and don't have to answer them. I pray for the things I want. Pray for the things I need. I pray for forgiveness. Occasionally, I pray for personal holiness, for sin to be put to death in my life. But it is rare that I consider how what I'm asking for relates to the glory of God. On that point, Jesus' prayer stands in stark contrast to mine, doesn't it? The content of this prayer is almost indistinguishable from what he's been teaching throughout his ministry. His earlier teaching, his farewell discourse, and this prayer reveal the consistency of Jesus' faith. What he says, what he believes, these are what he prays. He taught his disciples what they needed to know before he departs. He tried to comfort them in their grief. He gave them the bad news that they'll be hated by the world, and the good news that he has overcome the world. And now, he prays for them. Approaching the cross, Jesus' thoughts and feelings have to be complex. He is completely committed to obedience to the Father. And he knows full well the agony that awaits. He loves his disciples and is blessed by their faith and trust. He also knows that they will scatter under the power of the world's incoming hate. But notice that as he gives voice to all of this in prayer, what's top of mind for Jesus in the whole thing is what can be so easily out of sight, out of mind for us, the glory of God. That Jesus uses this moment to pray is itself instructive, if you think about it. John has been filled with acknowledgments from Jesus that this is the Father's plan. His hour had not yet arrived, then the hour was getting closer, and finally the hour is now here. Jesus' glorification through the cross and resurrection has been the Father's plan all along. In one sense, it can't not happen. The sovereignty and the the will and the power of God assures that this is what's going to happen. And yet Jesus prays for it to happen. As one pastor writes, as so often in scripture, emphasis on God's sovereignty functions as an incentive to prayer. Not a deterrent. Jesus, who knows with certainty what will be accomplished, knows also that it will be accomplished through prayer. He lifted his eyes and said, Father, how will he be lifted up? How will he be raised? How will he send his disciples the spirit? How will they, as he has, overcome the world? He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, that's how. In the first part of the prayer, verses 1 through 5, he prays for his own glorification. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. What Jesus is asking for in one sense is the reversal of the humiliation of his incarnation. Another teacher observes the petition asks the father to reverse the self emptying, entailed in the incarnation, restoring to him the splendor he shared with the Father before the world began. We sing all these hymns about Jesus in his humility coming down and taking on human flesh. And here Jesus is asking that that humility be reversed, that his glory be restored in its fullness. And make no mistake, Jesus glorifies the Father in all that he does. But there's a difference between the glory of his obedience in the incarnation and the glory that he shared with the father before all time. And he's not asking to undo the incarnation, but to bring those glories together in a new way. At the resurrection and ascension, Jesus will not lay aside his flesh. He is now forever incarnate. But from the moment of his incarnation, from that little Bethlehem manger until now, he had laid aside the eternal glory of the Godhead. Jesus' desire in this prayer is that after the resurrection, still in his body, he would have returned to him the glory that he and the Father shared since the world began. What kind of prayer has great power as it is working? James says it's the prayer of the righteous person. It's the kind of prayer that the old King James says availeth much. Our temptation is to think simply that that means we need to behave better to get what we want in prayer. That's why when we're dealing with shame for our own sin, we don't want to pray. We didn't behave well, so why would God give us what we asked for? But Jesus doesn't talk about righteousness that way in isolation, the way we think of it. He talks about it only in connection with abiding with him, with sharing his joy and peace. And this is key, with glorifying his father. Jesus will get what he asks for here. He will get all that he asks for here. This is a prayer that has power as it is working. And at the center of this prayer, at the heart of every single thing for which he asks, is the glory of God. This isn't a careful way to say it, but colloquially at least, Jesus looks for the things that he wants that it would glorify the Father for him to receive. And he prays for those things. And he's given those things. That is the prayer of a righteous person. What are the things that I want that will bring glory to God if I receive them? And that prayer availeth much. The eternal life that Jesus has given to his disciples in verse 2, It glorifies the Father because it's an act not of theirs, but of God's. Verse 3 says that knowing God is salvation. That's not something we can bring about on our own. The Father had to reveal himself to them in the Son. It's the glory of God all the way down. Everything Jesus asks for, everything he receives, it's the glory of God all the way down. For Christ, our salvation was not an end in and of itself in isolation. If it were possible to save us in a way that did not glorify his Father, he would not have done it. His primary aim was not to save us. In all that he does, he seeks the Father's glory. And because of who his father is, all things that glorify the father are also for the good of the father's people. Jesus is the perfect self-revelation of the father. He's how we can know God. And therefore, when we are saved through knowing him, the father is glorified. Those who say that Christianity is a relationship and not a religion are wrong about religion. But they're right about relationship. The knowledge of God in Christ is covenantal union. It's personal faith. It's sincere trust and abiding fellowship to know God. This way is to glorify God. And it's to be saved. In verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. He begins by giving insight into why he's praying for them, which is also why he knows the Father will answer this prayer. Remember, Jesus is praying out loud here. So not only will the Father hear this prayer and answer it, but the disciples get to hear this prayer and be encouraged. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. John highlighted this theme before of the disciples and of us, but isn't it encouraging to be reminded that Jesus' people belonged to the Father before they even belonged to him? That it was the Father who took the disciples out of the world and gave them in love to his Son. We've often been hard on the disciples in this sermon series, and our criticism is valid when we're comparing them to perfect faith. But when Jesus compares his disciples to the world, he looks favorably upon them. Unlike the world, they believe in him. They obey Christ, not perfectly, but faithfully. They believe that the Father sent him, and they believed his teaching was true. To whom else shall they go? They know he alone has the words of eternal life. His praise of them in verses 6 through 8 is conspicuous in a passage that has such strong emphasis on God's sovereignty. And we would be inclined to just say it's all of God. And who cares about them? And Jesus says it's all of God. And look at what they do with what God has done. Jesus knows the Father elected them from all time and gave them to the Son. But it's also true that they responded in faith. It says they accepted his teaching. They obeyed his word. The faith they were given is now their faith. And Jesus prays that by the power of his father, they would continue in it. Aren't you glad Jesus is still praying that for us? He's petitioning the exact same thing of our father for us. That we will continue in the faith That we've been given. He prays in verse 11. That his father would keep them united in purposeful obedience. In verse 17. That he would keep them in faithfulness to the truth. And one that we easily overlook. Verse 13. That he would keep them in the joy of abiding in your love. As always for Jesus. Abiding in him and obedience and joy are always connected. The disciples must stay in this faith. They have to stay together in unity for God's purposes for his church to be realized. They have a tough task ahead of them. They have to spread and grow the church that Christ himself built. And their work must equip us, future generations of believers, to do the same by the power of the Spirit. And all of this while laboring in a hostile and hateful and unforgiving world. Kids, here Jesus is getting at something that Christians of all ages find hard to do. On the one hand, we're supposed to be different from the world. By following Christ, the way we live, the way we treat our parents and treat our siblings and our friends, it will look different different from the way that those who love the world live the world will make it harder for us to be faithful to jesus even so we're not to withdraw from the world either that would make it easier easier for us but it would be devastating for the world If we said we're only going to love Christians, we're only going to care about Christians, we're only going to live amongst Christians. The world desperately needs the love of Christians that points them to the love of Christ. That's our witness to the world and they can't witness us if we're not in the world. I heard another teacher say that the followers of Jesus are permitted neither the luxury of compromise nor the safety of disengagement. We can't look like the world and we can't withdraw from the world. Jesus prayed that his disciples would do neither. He prayed in verses 15 to 19 for their lives in the world. That they would be protected from the evil one. And that they would be sanctified. Now that word is connected to how he addresses his father in verse 11. He calls him holy father. The word holy and the word sanctified are are connected. God is holy. And the people and the things that are set apart for God, sanctified, are holy as he is holy. When Jesus' disciples... Led by the spirit of truth, see him clearly and follow him closely. They will be made holy for his purposes. With perfect unity of purpose with Christ, they will be the rock upon which he builds his church. Just as the father set Christ apart for his saving purpose, so the disciples are set apart to be Christ's faithful witnesses. And then with the help of the Spirit, with the protection of God himself, they live holy lives in an unholy world. Now in the final section, verses 20 to 23, Jesus prays for those who will believe on their account, on account of the apostolic witness. Now certainly other parts of Jesus' prayer are by extension fulfilled in and useful for us, but this part is directly about People like us. Given all our needs. Of all the things. Jesus could pray for. He narrows it down. To one. Unity. That they may all be one. Just as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be in us. Our unity comes from our identity as believers. That's why before the Lord's Supper, we always confess our faith. What the church in Corinth got wrong about the Supper was the divisions, the lack of unity, the tears of Christians, the backbiting attitudes that they brought to the table. And Paul said that is why Some of you are sick, and some of you have died. The lack of unity is is serious business. And so we we profess our faith, not not as a prideful display before men, but as an act of unity of the people of God. This is what we believe. This is what unites us. In a world and in a culture that works so hard to divide us along every line they can imagine, And to take our legitimate divisions and disagreements, places where we just don't see the world in quite the same way or we have different experiences or different preferences or priorities. There are legitimate differences, but the world tries to magnify all of them as if they divide more powerfully than this witness unites. It's almost as if Jesus knew what we would face. It's almost as if he prayed for the very thing we need. Our unity comes from our identity as believers. And because we believe and follow that message, we ought to be one. That message, faith in that message is what brought us into union with Christ. And how can we abide with him if we don't abide with one another? We're still distinct individuals. We're members of a body. We're each gifted uniquely. But when it comes to purpose, we live as one. And when it comes to love, we act as one. It's not because we're clones or sheeple, but because we all submit to God's perfect self Revelation in Christ, and we say that is bigger, is more eternal, is more significant than anything else that matters to me. Real unity between any two people cannot be achieved by human action, but only by the work of God. If you need to be reconciled to another person, Parent, child, spouse, sibling, neighbor, friend, if you need to be reconciled to another person, do not start by turning your attention to them. Start by turning your attention to Christ. That is where unity will be found. Lasting unity is not found in our earthly identities, denominational, political, or even size, big or small churches. Lasting unity in the church is ours when we share in Christ's purpose to glorify his Father in everything that we do. If any of us are after glory of self, self self-righteousness, selfish ends, unity gets pretty elusive, doesn't it? We see this in our relationships. But if we are all focused on God's glory through obedience to Christ in union with his purposes, we will be, as he prayed, one. And the manifestation of that unity, the witness for one another and for the world, will be love. He says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Why does Jesus ground our unity in love? Because that's what grounds the Trinity's unity. The same love that the Father has for the Son is the love that he has for us in the Son is the love that the Son has for us and is the love that we can have for one another when we abide in him. To me, this is the glorious message of the Gospel of John. All of that work that heavy load that we convince ourselves is ours to bear so that we can be good people and do right by people. It's all nonsense. If we want to live within the peace and joy and love of God, all we have to do is abide in a love that already exists and has existed since before all time. We just live within the stream of divine love. We come out of the world and into that stream. And thanks be to God, we don't even have to do that part ourselves. He calls us out of the world and places us in that stream. And so that love is what unites us. Despite the challenges of this life, despite the differences of our perspectives, and there are many invalid ones, despite the hurts of living in a sin-stained world, the love with which we learn to love, I heard another say, is nothing less than the love among the persons of the Godhead. It's incredible. Look around this room. How will you love them? How will they love you? You know yourself better than they do. You know the most unlovable parts of your being, the parts you are terrified anyone else will ever see. How will they love you? And look out there in the world. How will we love them, our enemies? We will love with the love of God into which we've been brought by redemption in the Son. In this prayer, Jesus has prayed for his people. He's prayed for protection from evil, for fidelity to the truth, and for our witness in the world. He prayed for safety and perseverance under hostile conditions. He prayed for his people because he loves his people. Oh, God, forgive me. You pray for those you love. And he prayed because his father loves his people. He prayed because his father loves him. And in that stream of love, we find a powerful and definitive answer to all of these prayers. They will be answered. His people will persevere because they're safe in his love. They'll witness to the world, neither withdrawing nor capitulating, because they abide in his love. They'll be sanctified in his truth and delight in the joy of his salvation because of his love. prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Well, then what prayer could be more effective than this one? The righteous one prayed that his people will abide in him. So we can. We will. We can be one. And we can glorify God with our lives because in his love and through his prayer, It will be done. Amen.